All right, all right. So once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome you all and all those listening on our podcast channel. Uh, tonight, we're going to start uh, a new book, the New Testament book of First Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to First Peter. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. Uh, all the Bible verses are going to be on the screen right behind my head, so we got you covered. So as you're turning to First Peter, let me give you a little background. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. Uh, he, was one of the, he was the only disciple when there was a storm and Jesus was walking on the water towards him. He was the only one that actually got out of the boat, took a few steps. He got scared and sunk, but he at least did that. The other 11 would not do that. Uh, so uh, you have to give him some credit for that. He was also, though, a disciple who denied knowing Jesus three times and then the rooster crowed as well. So Peter played a fairly big role in the early church. Um, so he's got a lot of important stuff to tell us. So let's just jump right in at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 and see what he wanted the world to know. So this is what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Okay, so what Peter is doing here, for starters, we've seen Paul do the same thing when he starts some of his letters, and that's to begin by identifying himself not just by name, but also by his calling. You'll notice he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle means one who is sent. So Peter's making this clear that he is not doing this by his own accord. This is not his church. This is not his movement. He was called by Jesus Christ. He was trained by Jesus Christ and then sent out with a very specific purpose. And very similar to Paul, when Peter writes these letters, his aim is to begin by declaring his authority to speak for Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He wants his words to carry weight. A lot of the places that his letter is going to be read, these areas, there's a lot of other religious beliefs. There's paganism. There's, there's Jews. He wants them to understand who Jesus Christ is and what his authority is. Again, these aren't his teachings. They come straight from Jesus Christ, right? And so what he's doing is he wants to make these teachings, he wants them to carry priority. He's going to lay the foundation for the church, and it needs to be built on Jesus Christ, right? So that's why he's starting out the way he does. And he's also, we can notice as we go forward, he's laying the slate for what's about to come next, right? The next thing he does is state who this letter is intended for. He mentions the exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So what this means is this isn't one church. This isn't one group of people like Felsmere, Sebastian. He's writing it to a large area, all these Christians in these outlying areas where the church is growing. His intent, his general intent, was for this to go all over the world. Just go wide, right? Just all sorts of people. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. And to make sure, to make sure there's no distinction between one town or another or one group or another, he says in verse 2, he says, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So this is very specific. This means each one of them, he's actually referring to us as well, each one of them and us, we are known by God. We are chosen by God. This is not a mistake. It's not an accident. God wanted you to know about him. He wanted you to know about Jesus Christ. That was always his intention. It's not like uh, someone's walking along and they actually dropped a little letter and like, oh, hey, maybe this applies to me. This is very specifically 
for you. This is what God always wanted. He's also making a point that it, this is something that we all feel at some point probably. At some point you maybe feel like a stranger, like you don't belong, like you don't know where your calling is in life. Maybe you're not even worthy of God. And Peter is saying that is completely false. That is something the devil puts in your mind to drive a wedge between you and God. God wanted, always wanted the world to know about him, to have a relationship with him, right? And for example, let's look at this really cool verse. This is one of these verses that always stuck out in my mind. It's from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And you're going to see that God always intended for the world to know about him. So it's Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. And then you guys finish the last part. What's it say? That my son. Okay, so I want to pause on this for a moment. Make sure we understand fully what this means, because this is important. Right? And this is really important for one big reason. You will hear people say that the Israelites are God's chosen people. Have you heard that before? Something along those lines, right? And there's absolutely truth to that. But there's also context. The Israelites were chosen. They were freed from slavery. They were given the law. They were given the promised land. But what would come from their nation that was intended for the whole world? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, right? So absolutely they were chosen, and God had a plan for them, a very specific purpose. But what did that plan include that we just read in verse 49? His salvation was meant to go all the way around the world. By God's own words, it was too small a thing to start with the Israelites and end with the Israelites and nothing else. It's too small a thing. He intended it to always go further, right? And so here's the next step in this. In a way, where we are today, each one of us in this church, we're like the Israelites when it comes to verse 40, 49. It's too small a thing for the church to just kind of stop right here. It was always meant to go further further around the world. We're just the next generation beyond that. It's meant to keep going, right? It's always supposed to go further. And for example, think about the people in your life who don't know Jesus Christ. We all know people. People at work, people at the grocery store, family, friends, right? Those are the people that Isaiah 49, what we just read, applies to right now, right? We're now the middleman. Our job is to keep that going. That's where our hearts and minds should be. So the mission here, and this is what we're going to see Peter talk about at length, is getting that message out. Making sure no, they know Jesus. Make sure they understand who he is and what he did for us. And make sure people always understand that door is open. The call is always there, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. And what's cool is we're also going to see Peter doing this letter, is making sure that people understand that God knows them, and he wants them to know him. This is a two-way street. He's not some distant, unknowable God. Like if you, if you want to get into some history, look at uh, some of the pagan gods, the Greek and Roman gods. They were distant. They were far. You didn't know him, them like you knew this God. He's real. He desires a relationship. And this is special because Peter is making this personal. The outlying people in these outlying nations, they knew they weren't Jews. They knew they lived in far-off places, not a lot of visitors, a lot of distant places, and yet... The creator of the universe wanted to know them and wanted them to know him, right? This is special. It gives it meaning. And Peter goes further and he says this. He says, you have been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
to be obedient to Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So God's grace, his peace, his free gift of love, forgiveness, through Jesus Christ is given in abundance. Not in little bit, not tiny bits, not will you give me 50 bucks and I'll tell you God loves you. It's just given in abundance, just coming at you. That's what he means, overflowing directly to you. Right? And Peter, was, he's writing this, this is powerful stuff, but the intent, this is very specific, was to be real and personal for you. And now as he moves into verse uh, 3 and beyond, remember, though, this is what's cool. The New Testament, as we know it, had not been written yet. The only thing these people had to go on so far was word of mouth about this Jesus, even who Peter was. And now they have this letter. So just for a moment, if you'd humor me, erase everything you know about Jesus Christ from your mind. Forget that you have a Bible. Forget that you may have the Bible app on your phone, right? I want you to put yourself in these people's shoes. And the reason I want you to do this is because when we listen to what Peter is going to say over the next few verses, do it, listen to it from a blank slate. You're hearing about this man Jesus for the first time, from a man who met Jesus, who knew him. I want you to listen to what he describes, who Jesus is and what he does. All right? And yet this message is directed directly at you. So let's, let's uh, read what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Praise be to God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So these people may not have known the whole story yet. right? They may have just gotten big pieces. But yet here we have the main parts. We have God the Father, and we know about that he has a son, Jesus Christ. Because of their status, they're worthy of adoration and praise and thanks. Because he's the one true God, he should be worshipped. And now we also learn an important aspect of God the Father, and that he is merciful. Now the people would have likely known about the Jewish law, have heard about it. They certainly could have related to the concepts of sin and seen its effects in the world around them. But that what they didn't know, what they would have, would have been foreign to them, is how this God planned to deal with all that? What was his plan for the world? How would God fix the world? What was he going to do? And if you think about their gods and what they were used to, is would he be angry? Would he be vengeful? Would he show favorites? Would he require a big sacrifice? Would I have to even have to sacrifice my own kids? And those are decent questions. The pagan gods of the time, if you remember from your Greek and Roman history, they were notorious for being petty. They had fits of rage. They had anger. They, they need to be placated with gifts uh, regularly. And that's, how they, that's what they believed. The pagan gods, they frequently fought each other. They had affairs. They slept around. They could be cruel. But this God, the one that Peter is talking about, is different. This God is completely different. This God shows mercy. He doesn't need my money, my children, or anything else. He isn't petty. He wants us to be kind, patient, understanding with each other. But what more, more than that, what does this God want from me? What does the creator of heaven want? He wants me to believe in him. He wants to know me, to have a relationship with me. He stop, wants me to stop committing sins. He wants me to treat my neighbor with love and patience. And so what this God brings in reality is a better life, a better world. This God brings hope where there isn't any. He brings love and patience where they're in short supply. He brings all of that, and he brings salvation as well. What he asks is return, in return is for you to believe in him and his son. 
And then when you learn more about the son, you hear about the son. He took responsibility for our sins. He died on the cross. All the damage to the world, everything we do, he took responsibility for. And this is what this God does for us. Now, the next big gift we get from God, according to Peter, is coming up here. It's in verse 4. He tells us we need to believe. So 1 Peter, 4, 1 Peter 1, verse 4, he says, Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So believing in this Jesus that he's talking about, his inheritance is kept safe for us in heaven, where it never spoils, fades, or can be stolen. Now, this isn't as important to us today as it would have been back then, because back then it was still a fairly common practice when someone died, you buried things with them, things of value, their personal belongings. You could do money, gifts, food, different items like that. Think of the Egyptian pharaohs. When they opened their tombs, what were they full of? Gold, expensive things, right? This was common. The ancient Vikings did it. Native Americans did it. It was a very common thing. But once those things are in the ground, those valuables, what were they at risk of? Being robbed. Grave robbers. It happened, right? They frequently were. Remember, personal safes and bank safe deposit boxes hadn't been invented yet, right? So thievery was common, and it always was in the back of your mind when you buried someone if there was anything of value in there because someone would go back and dig it up, even your own eventual death. And so when Peter says... You will have great treasure in heaven where it can't be stolen. It won't rot, it won't spoil, or it won't fade. That was big to them. This, was God, this God was providing something the other gods could not. He was providing eternal security, comfort, and joy for everybody who believed. And this next piece is just as special. This salvation wasn't just for the rich or the upper class, but everyone who believed. And this is something none of the other gods, the other, other religions promised or even suggested. Because you know, uh, what's really sad is in many of those pagan religions, whatever your status was in life, whatever your socioeconomic status was in life, that's what it was going to be in the afterlife. If you were a peasant, you were a peasant after you died. If you were a poor farmer, that's what happened. Right? Nothing changed. You were locked in. There was... There was no equality. There's no chance to improve your status. That was your lot for eternity. The gods could not or would not change that. But this new God, this Jesus Christ, he was available to all people equally. Rich people didn't get into heaven first. Rich people didn't have mansions any more than anybody else. And actually, this Jesus said rich people have a harder time getting into heaven because of their love of money. Right? It totally flipped the scales. To be great in God's eyes, you need to be generous, kind, patient, loving, understanding. So this was very unique. This was very different. And it was special because of what it meant to all people. So let's continue. Let's read verses 5 and 6, and let's see what Peter t- tells us next. He says, Who through faith were shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Okay, so what Peter's doing here is he's providing comfort and assurance for those who believe and those who trust in God. And specifically, he says that we're shielded by God's power until the last days when Jesus returns. And this means once we come to believe, the devil and his angels, they can no longer harm us. 
Sure, we can be tempted, um, and they can, uh, but they cannot harm us in any way. We're protected by God's Spirit when He comes to live within us. Now, while this is good news, Peter also reminds us that this does not mean we will never experience hardship or grief in this life. We are, know that, right? We've all experienced that to a degree. Those things happen in life whether we believe it or not. But the difference is, if we believe in God, if we have a relationship with him, when we know we are not alone. We know this God is for us and he will be with us no matter what we're going through. Because this world has fallen because of sin, because of us. But this God is our helper through life. He's our redeemer. Right? And just to show, I want to just show that hardship is normal and it's expected to a degree. I want to read, let's read some stuff that Jesus told the disciples right before he went back to heaven. Right? And this is Jesus laying out the reality of what it means to follow him. And this is going to be from John chapter 16. If you want to read this, a whole big thing. We're only going to read three verses in there, but you're going to get a good idea. So John 16, verses 2, verse 20, and verse 33. He's talking to his disciples. They will put you out of the synagogue, which means kick you out. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. Now pause there for a second. He's saying people are going to try to kill you and they're thinking they're doing God's work. Now, is there a religion today that does that? Did you know Christianity did that too for a while? During the Crusades, the Pope told people, if you kill Muslims, Jews, fighting for the Holy Land and you die, you're going automatically going to heaven. All right? It's not, it's, it, a lot of religions have done that. Now, verse 20, he says, Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. This is what he says in verse 33. I have told you these things so that in, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus, yeah, right, it's amazing. So Jesus, he's being about as blunt as he can about what may happen. And he doesn't do this to frighten them, but rather to give them strength. He's showing them that he is greater than the world because he knows what's coming. He can see what's in people's hearts. He knows what's going to happen to his followers. But instead of telling them to run and hide or protect themselves, notice he expects them to remain right in the thick of it, to go nowhere, to change nothing. And why would he do that? Why would he want them to remain? Because they are part of the solution. They are part of his church. They're an extension of him. Their job is to help save the world, to spread the good news. And to do that, sometimes you have to remain in places that are fallen. You have to preach the good news in places where there is no good news, in places where there may be danger. But Jesus said in verse 33, what he said should give us the most hope and assurance. I love this. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. That means don't lose faith. When others lose faith, they turn and run. You remain strong. Keep your faith. When others would look out for themselves and say, heck, I'm out of here. He says, I want you to stay in the storm. Bring peace, hope, and love. And you can do this because I have overcome the world. Nothing is too strong for me. Now, there's another verse I want to share. It really goes along well with this. And it's, it's something you've likely heard before, and it's something I like to say at the end of church services. It's the, this blessing from number six. And the reason it applies here, though, is because Moses and Aaron, when they said this to the, ble- this to the people, they were saying this right as they were about to go into the promised land. Right? And then when, we hear, when you hear that, you're like, oh, that sounds awesome. 
It's like they're going into a, a golf resort or something like that. They're checking out on vacation. But that is not what was about to happen. Remember, what did they do when they had to go to the promised land? They had to fight for it all the way through. Yes, they were there, but the battle hadn't started yet. There was real fighting to do, which means they're going to have to drive a lot of people out. So this blessing is awesome, but you have to remember there was hardship, there was difficulty, there were battles still to come. So this blessing, these words are about God telling the people, I am with you. I have overcome the world. Stay strong, I will be with you. So remember that as we read these words, because they're beautiful, but it gets even better when you read it and understand it in this full context. So number six, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face towards you and, he give, you his, and give you his peace. So the reason God is offering his peace is because you're heading into a place where there is no peace. You're going to experience hardship, but how much better will things be with God's face shining on you? when they have his blessing and his grace going with them into this new land. And here's what's cool in verse 7, which comes next. It fits perfectly with this because it, it describes how our faith in through these times like this, times like this are going to be refined and tested and strengthened, right? And this hardship will ultimately re result in us praising and celebrating when Jesus returns. So it's 1 Peter 1, verse 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what this verse is doing is comparing our faith to gold, which has been refined and made better through fire. So if you think a moment about miners who find or panning for gold or they, they, you know, they find a vein of gold in the rock, that gold is not pure, it's dirty, it's got other minerals, it's got rock next to it. But what about after it's chiseled out, after it's melted down and molded into shape? It becomes one of the most valuable things on this earth. It really does. And Peter relates that directly to our faith. Our faith only becomes stronger, more special, more valuable when we go through hard times and realize Jesus Christ is there right with us the whole time. And the final point he makes is how much greater, how much more of a celebration will our faith be when we finally meet him face to face in heaven. All right? And that's really, it's a very cool thing he's talking about here. Now, as we move into verses 8 and 9, we're going to see Peter address an obvious fact about Jesus Christ. And that is that none of us outside of his small group of followers have seen him with our own eyes. We haven't seen him, but there's a reward for those who believe in spite of not seeing him. And let's see how he describes it. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. So Peter's correct here. We have not seen Jesus with our own eyes. Anybody see him today? No. Didn't see him yesterday. Didn't see him today. We're probably not going to see him tomorrow. However, because of who he is, the fact that he is the Messiah, and we believe in him, you can feel his presence. You can still experience joy and hope, and have a real purpose in our lives through him. So the fact that we haven't physically seen him yet makes no difference in our faith and what our future holds. And for those who remain strong in spite of not physically seeing Jesus Christ, he says you will receive salvation, eternal life. Now, here's a point I always like to make. Just in case you might be thinking, and this would be totally normal if you were, in case you were thinking, well, it wouldn't hurt my faith to see Jesus Christ. Let's be honest. 
it can't hurt, right? Just a little bit. But I would beg to differ. As I've struggled with this throughout my life and when I was growing in my faith in particular, and all we really need to do is look at Peter himself as a perfect example of why that is not true. So follow with me on this. Peter, like the other disciples, saw Jesus do all kinds of miracles, right? He saw him feed 5,000 people. Pretty sweet. He saw him cure diseases. Pretty impressive. He saw him walk on water, right? Saw him cast out demons. He saw Jesus do things we will never see on this earth. But here's the million-dollar question. Did seeing the very real Jesus do all that stuff with his own eyes did that give Peter unbreakable faith? You answered that pretty quick, right? It di- he didn't, right? What did Peter and the other disciples do when Jesus got arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? They all ran. Peter, for a moment, grabbed a sword and tried to cut somebody's ear off. Or actually, he did, but then what happened? They ran and they hid. They left Jesus. Their faith was out the window. Peter did at some point decide to follow Jesus as he was being arrested, but it was at a distance, way away, hiding in the shadows. Right? And then when Jesus was taken into the high priest Caiaphas' house for questioning, Peter managed to sneak into the courtyard, right? But he snuck in. He didn't want anybody to know who he was. I kind of always envisioned him grabbing a hat and sunglasses and a fake mustache, and he's just kind of sauntering around on the side. Definitely trying, to be unno- trying not to be noticed. That is not something people do with great faith do, right? That's not what happens. And while he's standing in the court, in the courtyard, someone recognizes him. They say, hey, I know you. I've seen you with Jesus. I've seen you. What does he say? Well, yes, I am a disciple. Would I, can I tell you about him? Would you like to be baptized? What does he say? Never heard that guy. Well, he's yelling it. No, he, does, he keeps denying him. Three times. Three times he has the opportunity to admit his faith, and he refuses to do that. So my point in telling you this is seeing Jesus with your own eyeballs, face-to-face, seeing miracles does not guarantee faith. In fact, it has no bearing on it, ultimately. Faith is believing without seeing. Faith is hearing the good news and believing because of the message of Jesus Christ and what you feel in your heart. So now after covering all this, Peter, he's going to really get a little bit abstract and it's cool. He's going to describe how the prophets looked forward to, longed for the coming Messiah. But also how over the course of the Old Testament, they got little pieces of information, little bits and pieces, but they never got the full picture. God answered this in time. Right? So let's read and talk about it. So 1 Peter 1, 10-11. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he directed the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. So what he's saying here is the prophets, the writers of the Old Testament, they longed, they searched, they tried to find, figure out the exact information. When was he actually coming? Who was it actually going to be? What would he fully do? I mean, they had some of the basics. They kind of understood a little bit. They saw that the world was sinful and fallen. They knew God had the answer, but they didn't know exactly when and how. They knew the Messiah would come and make things right. So their hearts were in the right place, and they were trying to put all the pieces together. They just didn't have the final piece, and that's what they longed for. 
Now let's read the last verse for today and let's see how Peter finishes off. This, this is really cool. 1 Peter 1, verse 12. He says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So this is actually kind of special, but it also highlights, it highlights our roles as disciples and servants of Jesus Christ. So when Peter says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, he means that even at the moment, even at the moment God gave them the information, the prophecy, the events, the foreshadowing, none of them fully comprehended how big, how far it was going to go. They were still thinking of themselves to agree and us, but they couldn't put all the pieces together. God's word had helped them in their faith, but they never fully were able to wrap their heads around it, how far God's word was going to go. Right? They didn't fully appreciate the number of people who were going to be blessed by, God, by what God was doing. The whole thing was way bigger than they imagined. Peter even says the angels longed to know these things. This means the angels, they knew the Messiah would come, but even they didn't have all the answers. They too saw how sinful the world was. They knew God was going to intervene but they weren't given every little piece of information ahead of time. They were being obedient to God, following their calling, and at some point they knew God's plan was going to come together. And as they watched the events unfold on earth, they looked forward with hope to when Jesus would come to make things right. So what Peter's describing here is pretty heavy duty, but it encapsulates a lot from the very beginning of time until now. And this is where he's going with it. This is the point. Peter was laying the foundation for the early Christian church. He was laying the foundation for faith. He's giving all the information to plant these seeds of faith. He then took time to water them and watch them grow. And then over time, his goal, and this is what Jesus had too, was for those people, as their faith grew, they would then help the next generation, and the generation after that, and the generation after that. that was, and, but it always needed to be focused on Jesus Christ. And so that's, what, as we, that's why we shared Isaiah 59, that God's salvation was always meant to go to the ends of the earth. So now as we pray together, as we finish, let's pray. But let's say a prayer specifically for God to help us in our faith, to help us grow and then do our part to make sure the message goes all the way around the world even farther. All right? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, tonight... We reach out to you as your people. This is your church. Each one of us belongs to you. We ask that you will greatly increase our faith. No matter where we are on the road of life, we ask that you pull each one of us closer to you. Show us how we can improve our lives and be better examples of you. Father, we also ask that you provide us opportunities to share the good news of your Son and to do our part to help your salvation go around the world. Help us to read and study your Bible. Grant us understanding so we can incorporate everything we learn into our lives and that we make, live lives that make you proud. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the Son and the work of the disciples and the early church. But most of all, we thank you for the gift of forgiveness and salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.